Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021. Uh, our guest today is going to be a speaker there. We're very excited to have him and his firm uh, at the at the SALT New York event. It's shaping up to be a fantastic event, not just in crypto, but covering uh, asset managers from hedge funds, venture capital, down through the entire alternative investment spectrum. So looking forward to a fantastic event there. But our goal there and our goal here on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And our guest today is the president of FTX US. FTX is a company that we think is one of the most important companies, if not the most important company today in the crypto ecosystem. His name is Brett Harrison. Again, he's the president of FTX US, which is a US regulated cryptocurrency exchange. Prior to joining FTX US, Brett was the head of semi-systematic technology at Citadel Securities in Chicago, where he still lives where he managed technology for the firm's options, ETF, over-the-counter, and ADR trading globally. He began and spent the majority of his career at Jane Street, which is where he met Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX, uh, where he led the firm's algorithmic trading system development. He also previously worked at Headlands Technologies as senior software developer. Brett received his master's and his bachelor's degree uh, in computer science from Harvard, uh, our host today, Anthony Scaramucci, also spent some time, time at Harvard, but over at the law school. Uh, Anthony also took three attempts to pass the bar exam. So I'm going to go ahead and say that Brett's academic accomplishments maybe supersede Anthony's a little bit. But Anthony is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge, which is a good investment fact, firm. Are you going to mention the fact that <laughs> He's also the fired. chairman of SALT. Go yeah. ahead, Anthony. Get yeah. your yeah. shots You're in on You're going to mention the fact that I got fired from the White House before we get the thing started? We'll that one in. You know, the problem is if I divided my age by four, it like adds up to your ages. OK, I mean, your respective ages. So I'm with two young bucks here. So I'm going to I'm on my own. OK, I don't have any baby boomers here to protect me. Keep going, Darcy. What else you got to say? Go ahead. I'm done. I've said all the disparaging things I'm going to say, but we're we're excited to have Brett on here. It's Skybridge. Anthony, obviously, uh, as you may know, Brett, we we were one of the first 40 act funds to invest in funds with allocations to cryptocurrencies and, and obviously very enthusiastic about the space and excited to have you guys at the conference. But uh, Anthony, you take it away and I'll pipe in with some questions later on. Well, uh, Harrison, that will not be the most disparaging thing that he says. Okay. You have to understand there's a little bit of a rivalry here because John Dorsey gets fan mail. Okay. I'm just letting you know, Brett, that irks me. So let's go right into it. You got to tell us a little bit more about your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And did you think you'd be doing what you're doing today when you left high school, Brett? That's what I want to know. Sure. Uh, so I was born in New York City. I uh, grew up in Long Island, New York. What, um, what town on Long Island? Uh, Dix Hills. Okay. So you're like Huntington, Comac, right in the middle. Yeah. All right. I'm from, I'm from Port Washington. He's like oh, a transplant excellent. at the Sands Point. He lives on a baronial Ooh, estate. Okay. Yeah. Fancy. He's, he's incredibly Very fancy. Nice. That's why he's wearing the Zuckerberg sweatshirt. <laughs> Zuckerberg. Oh, so he grew up in Dix Hills. Where'd you go to college? Yeah. I went to Harvard. Um, got my bachelor's and master's degree when I was at Harvard. Um, and then uh, moved back to New York City uh, to start my career at Jane Street. Um, to, when I was in school studying 
comp sci. I had no idea what I wanted to do with that. At the time, it wasn't obvious that with a computer science degree, you could just do anything. You know, every single company needs, you know, computer programmers of some kind. Um, I thought maybe I would be a teacher or just work for a company that I knew the name of, like Google or Microsoft. But then I had a number of friends uh, in my you know, math and computer science courses who were getting all these internships at trading firms. And uh, a couple of them had worked at Jane Street and they said, yeah, you really should try applying and, and check it out. They, it's a great place for math and CS and physics majors. And um, I didn't know anything about finance, uh, but sure, let's give it a shot. And then I, I interned there and I ended up at Jane Street and spent the majority of my career there. And that's sort of how I got my start into finance. Um, but as for crypto, I really was not um, involved in crypto at all uh, prior to FTX, except for a short stint with crypto with Jane Street when they were starting to get into the trading space uh, towards the end of 2017. And uh, mostly just spent my time building systems and managing teams for you know, sort of the regulated uh, financial instrument markets like equities, equity options, commodity derivatives, things like that. So FTX, perhaps the fastest growing cryptocurrency company in the world. Um, for those of people that are less familiar, uh, tell our audience about the various lines of business, but also FTX US and how that all fits in together. And of course, sure. you're, the pres- you're the president of FTX US. Yes. So FTX, um, the international exchange, uh, was started around two years ago as really an answer to the existing derivatives exchanges that existed, um, where a bunch of bad stuff was happening. You know, c- customers were getting liquidated left and right. Uh, there was no cross-margining. So, you know, you couldn't use uh, your Ethereum to collateralize your Bitcoin futures position. It was a real pain to be able to operate any of these platforms. The interfaces were clunky. The risk systems weren't built by people who really understood trading. And so Sam Bankman-Fried founded FTX two years ago um, with no clear idea that this would be something that would be this huge. You know, he thought, look, we, we know we could do a better job, um, but let's just give it a shot. And organically, the growth has just been exponential over time. And FTX grew to, you know, somewhere between the fourth and second largest exchange in the world uh, for trading crypto and crypto derivatives. Uh, fast forward to about a year and change ago, um, when the company decided to make a U.S. offering. Now, in the U.S., because of the existing regulatory and licensing regimes, there's a limit to what you can do um, without getting some certain kinds of licenses. So in this case, the, the FTX U.S. was started. It's a completely separate company um, that's run entirely within the U.S., and it is currently a spot cryptocurrency exchange. So we offer you know, 20 some odd pairs of uh, spot crypto token pairs um, that you can trade. We also have um, some spot margin uh, program. We have uh, an NFT marketplace. We have a payments uh, system whereby merchants can use FTX US to accept uh, crypto as payments. And uh, we're doing around $150 million of volume in day a day on the US platform, um, up from around like a million dollars a day uh, back in January. So we're growing super fast as well, um, but still, you know, climbing up the a ladder to compete with some of the biggest competitors in the U.S. space. From a regulatory standpoint, how does FTX U.S. operate differently from FTX International? 
So FTX US um, is a FinCEN regulated money services business. Um, so we operate under that regime and we report to, to FinCEN um, to be able to uh, operate a, a business, which all it really does at the end of the day is transfer money between different persons. So, you know, one person from, you know, Washington wants to uh, buy crypto from eventually, so let's say someone in Mississippi, because those are the two orders that match up in the order book, you know, we're licensed to be able to transfer either virtual currency or fiat currency between those two parties. And so that's how we are um, regulated within the US. Um, it also means that there's a lot of things that we can't do. Uh, so for example, there are certain um, spot tokens that might clearly be securities under the SEC definition. And because we're not a securities exchange and they're not registered securities, you can't offer unregistered securities to unaccredited investors. Um, so we can't list certain things on the platform in the US uh, because of those restrictions. So that's a big way in which sort of we operate differently from you know, FTX.com, whereas FTX.com have a wider array of spot tokens on the platform. They offer uh, futures, um, quarterlies, perpetual futures, other kinds of prediction market contracts that we can't offer in the US yet. But you're getting there, and you just—we're getting there. Uh, yeah, you're getting there. You just did a major transaction. Uh, congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Uh, um, I have to disclose that I was an early investor in Ledger X, uh, sure. so I'm disclosing that now, and I know uh, the company quite well. Tell us a little bit about Ledger X. Why you decided to buy Ledger X, and the regulatory landscape related to the CFTC. Right. And congratulations on the deal, by the way. Yeah, thanks so much. No, it's really exciting. Maybe working backwards a little bit. Um, so in the US, if you want to be able to operate an exchange that allows people to trade things like futures and options, you have to have a license from the CFTC um, called the DCM license or designated contract market license. Um, alternatively, you can also have a CEF license or swap execution facility, which allows you to operate a, a swaps trading platform which you can only operate between ECPs, exchange contract participants, which are basically you know, clients that are, have a certain um, net assets, you know, above 10 million in assets and a few other definitions. Um, and there's one more important part of this, which is in order to actually clear um, derivative contracts, you have to do it at a DCO or a, designate, or a derivatives clearing organization, a clearinghouse. And there are very few DCMs and DCOs in the United States. In fact, on the DCO side, there's only really about five. And LedgerX has all three of the above licenses. They're a DCM, a DCO, and a CEF. And they have quite an expansive um, a scope of their DCO license to be able to clear futures, options, options on futures, swaps. And so for FTX, which has this two-year history of running a huge successful derivatives platform, and we want to bring this to the U.S. in a regulated fashion by you know, using the existing regime from the CFTC. It's, it's a very attractive target for us to be able to work with them and in conjunction with their licenses, uh, be able to have a path to offering derivatives to U.S. retail and institutional customers. OK, so it's exciting. Uh, the transaction has been announced. Um, you're uh, closing subject to regulatory approval, keeping my fingers crossed there. Uh, you have the ambitions beyond crypto coins, uh, including things like tokenized securities, equity derivative products that you're discussing, innovative commodity derivative products. 
Tell us about the future. Give us a sense for the uh, wide-ranging vision that you guys have for the firm. Sure. So I think one thing that makes FTX special as a technology platform is that it wasn't built just for crypto. It's a quite generic platform for doing things like matching up buyers and sellers of any asset that you can attach a price to, um, of being able to be custodians of customer funds, of providing an app or a website where people can go and manage their experience, whether they're a new person to crypto or they're an experienced professional investor or an institution. And so because of that, we could really be an exchange for everything. We don't have to just be for crypto. And for example, using the LedgerX licenses, um, there's no reason why after offering, let's say, Bitcoin options or Ethereum futures, we couldn't eventually offer you know, an S&P 500 future on our platform. Um, if right now you can't open up a phone and trade a, you know, a CME future on without going through, let's say, some other kind of broker, and there's a lot of expensive fees involved in that, and you might not be able to see the order book because market data fees are expensive on those platforms too, we could completely turn that on its head. And so I think that there's a huge you know, potential for us to get into these different markets. And then beyond you know, derivatives, I think, in terms of having an investment platform that really attracts a wide array of uh, you know, retail customers, what's next? There's crypto, there's derivatives. Well, I think a natural extension of that is plain you know, US stocks and options, which are you know, hugely popular for investors in the US. And again, no reason why that can't be you know, something else on our future roadmap. I mean, so the very, very big ambitions. You're going to come up against some uh, competition with some of the existing exchanges. Uh, so tell us how you're going to manage that. Yeah, it's 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 a tough climb because we're so new. You know, FTX US has been around for a year. If you think about some of our you know biggest competitors in the crypto space, just the spot crypto markets, for example, you know some of these companies have been around eight, nine, ten years. They've become household names for trading crypto. And we need to do the same. We need to be the name that everyone m- mentions first when they think about crypto. And so that's why we've also been making this huge sort of marketing, branding, sponsorship push in the US where we're, you know, we're partnering with Major League Baseball or you know, we named the Miami Heat Arena, the FTX Arena. And it's to make a big splash in the US and get people to think of us as their household you know, name for what they think to first when they want to go download an app to trade crypto or anything else. And so the combination of having the superior technology, having a great user experience, having relatively lower fees, and also you know, having this wide brand appeal, I think is going to help us, you know, eventually dominate in the US. Okay. So I, you know, I mean, this is editorializing by me. So forgive me. I think the move to name the arena was absolutely brilliant. But I think the move to put the name on the umpires was absolutely more brilliant than the brilliance of naming the theater. I'm not flattering you. I just think it's absolutely brilliant because it creates this instant imprimatur and you've raised yourselves up to the level of the quote unquote major leagues, literally major league baseball. Right. So who came up with the idea? How did you decide to do it? It is a bold and sweeping idea, which I greatly admire. Uh, give us some thought behind that. Help me with that. You know, Sam, Sam as you've seen from the, the 
dizzying growth, all of the acquisitions, all of these partnerships, he thinks up here, you know, when I think everyone thinks like, what's the next incremental step? He's like, how can I leapfrog everything? So I think, you know, the story went down something like this. I'm not going to personally take credit for the, you know, the arena naming that was before my, before my time joining the company. Uh, The story went something like this. Sam basically went to to the employees of the company and said, what's the biggest thing we can do? Go out and figure it out. Everyone just go figure out what's the biggest, coolest deal that we can do to really get our name out there. I don't want to just buy Google ads or Facebook ads um, or do like one TV commercial. I want to figure out something that's really going to stick and have immediate widespread appeal. And then someone came back and and I think it was, you know, Avi had some experience um, with the NBA and said, you know, you might be able to name a stadium. And, you know, Sam said, go do it. And then he did it. And that's sort of how it happened. And same thing, like, what's the big, what's the, what's an established brand in the US that everyone knows and everyone loves and everyone trusts? How about a professional sports league? And then the conversations, you know, went on from there. And I'll tell you that I think the umpire patch worked out better than our wildest dreams because it was hard to really visualize until it actually happened. But every YouTube clip of a great, either a strikeout or a home run starts with looking at the player in front of the umpire with the patch. And so, you know, we're getting pictures and, and videos from you know fans of FTX all over the world who are showing, hey, we saw FTX at the game tonight. And so that we're just it, it just has worked out so well for getting our name out there. Well, I, I think it accomplished all of those things and and more because uh you 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 get the goodwill. You've burnished some goodwill from both of those places, which have more or less universality of goodwill. That's right. So, so I, I I applaud you guys for that. Uh, we did a recent salt talk with Anatoly Anatoly Yakovenko. Yeah. Okay. And so now, what? Look at me because I'm scratching my nose. You know why I'm doing that? Because I pronounced his name right, and Darcy did not think I was going to pronounce the guy's name right, but I actually <laughs> did. Okay. He's the founder of Solana, as we both know. Okay. And we talked a little bit about SAM and FTX and simultaneously disrupting a centralized exchange model by building something called Serum. So tell us what Serum is and tell us why you guys are using Solana. So DeFi is definitely has already taken a huge stake of the interest of the crypto world, but will take an even larger interest going forward. And in order for all of the various DeFi applications to exist and really scale, you need a layer one blockchain where you can achieve the number of transactions per second on that blockchain that a real world scale app might achieve. So if you think about, if you wanted to build Twitter on a blockchain, how many tweets and likes and replies and DMs are being sent per second? And you know, can a blockchain keep up with that? If you have an order book where you have every order and cancel and trade message happening on the blockchain, can a blockchain keep up with that? And right now for things like Ethereum and Bitcoin, those can support tens, maybe hundreds of transactions per second. That's not gonna scale if you have thousands or tens of thousands of apps with potentially hundreds of millions of users on those apps. And Solana was one of the few chains that FTX really saw that 
has that capability now and can have that potential to scale in the future. And so it just made sense that look, if, if we're going to help um, the Serum you know, company build this decentralized exchange, well, it's got to be on something that we know is going to work from the beginning. If we put it on something that's not something like Solana, it's going to be doomed from the start. And so that's you know how we ended up partnering so much with Solana. And there's such exciting things happening there. Um, is there opportunities to use other coins, you know, and create new serums, or are you locked into Solana and Serum, or because of your exchange ambidexterity and the diversity of what you're doing, will you do other things like Serum for other coins? So what's really cool about the Solana ecosystem, and I guess in general about DeFi, is that all of these apps that are on the Solana blockchain are composable. So for example, um, there's another project on Solana called Radium, and Radium is like a swap pool. And that Radium is built on top of Serum. But Radium has their own coin. You can stake that coin to receive yield. But it basically builds on top of something that's an order book. And you know the order book itself is built on this layer one blockchain. And so what you see in the Solana ecosystem is this explosion of different apps that are being created because each one can take whatever the other ones have built and use those as one component. And then they can have their own project, their own coin, their own ecosystem, their own user interface. And so what's what's really cool about this is you're not locked into some monolithic system that you have to use all of it or none of it. You can kind of pick and choose which aspects of the systems on the blockchain that you want to use for your app. Okay, so it sounds like it's Solana-centric then because you like the, the versatility of Solana. Is that fair to say? You know, I think that or we, you're, or you know, you're when, when, when we're building, when we're thinking about DeFi, when we want to partner with someone in the DeFi space, we're, we're pretty much, you know, we're choosing Solana because of its capabilities right now. Okay, but you're open-minded to others? or, it's, or that, Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Sam once said, I, I heard a quote from him saying that we're at war, meaning there's a, there's a war for real estate in the digital space, and there's a there's going to be a few winners and lots of losers. Yeah, so you're, you're open to others, or are you? I think of- there's definitely room for a couple. Okay. I don't think there's room for fifty. Right. And what you see is some of these blockchains that they're kind of either copies of another one, and they're not really adding much new to the space, mm-hmm. or they're not as well designed as something like Solana. And so I think you know you're going to see a couple over time that are going to stick okay. around. And- All right, sounds sounds good. I have a couple more questions. I know Mr. Sure. Dorsey is dying to ask you questions. He's going to open it a bit. He's got to he's got to try to upstage me with his non baby boomer intellect. All of this millennial stuff, you know, he thinks he's cutting edge with his hoodie. But uh, let's go to the NFT and gaming area. Yeah. Um, tell us what you're doing there. I know you've got some things powered by Serum there, uh, also decentralized. What's the future look like there? So the NFT space is really hot right now, and. First of all, just in general, people are, are, are coming into this space looking for a way to participate in the crypto ecosystem, but in a way that's familiar and friendly. And I think that the user friendliness of NFTs is really helping draw people into this. You know, it, it, it's something that a lot of people can, can vibe with. Okay, I there's a collectible. It's something that is a really cool piece of art and it's limited and I would like to own it. That's sort of an experience that is very familiar to people. And so I think more and more people are coming into DeFi by way of uh, by way of NFTs. 
Now, specifically, uh, Solana NFTs have really started to, to come on the scene in the last couple of weeks, even. And we're seeing such interest, you know, a, a pack of 10,000, you know, only one, you know, single first edition NFTs selling out in 30 seconds. Um, and so what we at FTX are looking to do Should is- Should I buy a degenerate ape? Um, well, it, buying it, you know, a couple of weeks ago would have been a very good trade. <laughs> you would have made a thousand percent on it. So, uh, you know, the, right now, I think the floor on a degen ape is a hundred soul. Um, it's around, you know, $10,000 or so. Yeah, it's getting it's, more expensive uh, every second, Brett, but Every way. second. If you keep refreshing, <laughs> it gets even more expensive. Um, but we would love to be, you know, the secondary marketplace for NFTs like DGEN apes. And so we're doing some hard work in the background as we speak to help build out our NFT platform to be a great place for not just Solana, but also you know, Ethereum-based NFTs uh, for people to resell. Listen, I think what you guys are doing is is amazing and fascinating. Uh, what are the next projects or types of acquisitions you have in your sites for FTX US? Yeah, it's 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 hard to say for sure. You know, since the raise, we certainly get a lot of opportunities for potential acquisitions. There's a lot that comes across our desk, and we're looking for you know a couple of different categories of things that we might want to look at for a potential acquisition. So one is ways of achieving user acquisition for our retail platform um, faster. So for example, Blockfolio, which is the first major FTX acquisition, you know, about a year ago was one of those plays. They have, you know, six, seven million users. Yeah. Not to interrupt you, but just because we have a lot of young users, what is Blockfolio in your words? Sure. So, that we so, can... so Blockfolio was primarily an app for tracking uh, crypto trades and your crypto portfolio it was one of the first of its kind and you know, one of the best. And when FTX acquired Blockfolio, we added trading to that app um, that was powered by FTX and FTX US. So the, the, the play there was for all these people who are constantly checking their app all the time, looking at their prices, let's give them a way of buying Bitcoin, of selling ETH. But let's do it in a way that is extremely user-friendly. That's really meant for that person who downloads the app for the first time. They don't even know what a Bitcoin is. Let's help them. Let's guide them through the process. So I think you know we're on on the hunt for similar kinds of acquisitions that can help get users onto FTX US. Um, and then I think licenses and you know the sort of regulatory side of things is, is another part of our you know acquisition target. So. You know, Ledger X was an obvious one in hindsight. Now, you know, we a great way for us to maybe get into derivatives in the U.S. faster than if we were to apply for those licenses from scratch. Um, and there may be other such companies that allow us to do, you know, new new business lines that they, you know, this target company has been able to get those licenses that we would need. All right. Well, I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey. I think what you guys have done is extraordinary. I applaud your. Uh, your marketing prowess. Um, I would like to get my house named after FTX. So I'm going to be talking to you guys about it later in the program. FTX, go ahead. Scaramucci House. Yeah, we don't have to even forget Scaramucci. I mean, that, that name, forget about it. We're just going to go with the FTX, okay? And we'll be talking about that naming ceremony later. But in the meantime, I'm going to turn it over to John Doors. Sure. And congratulations yeah. on everything you've done, Brad. I'm very impressed. Thank you.
Yeah, Brett, again, we're, we're super excited about Ledger X's, uh, you know, merger with FTX. We think it's a match made in heaven. When you guys started talking, you know, it was just, again, a, a great fit that I think will will supercharge the growth that you guys uh, organically have already achieved. So congratulations on that. But I want to talk about your background for a second. You talked about how you, know, you have a computer science background, both your bachelor's and your master's at Harvard. You went into the finance world. You know, you were at Jane Street. You were at Citadel. So you sort of sit on both sides of the equation where a lot of things going on in crypto today are being driven by engineering or computer science types uh, with less understanding of the financial world, less understanding of the regulatory environment. How do you think that sort of uh, dichotomy of your experience where you've you know lived the computer science education and experience, but also had uh, industry experience, how do you think that's helped you be an effective leader for FTX US? Sure. So it's interesting seeing the differences in the crypto space and the traditional finance space. Um, you know, I spent 12 years of my life inside of these highly successful but really secretive firms where they're very hyper competitive, um, you know, always looking to sort of outsmart their, you know, their cohorts. And compare that to crypto, where in the crypto world, everyone is talking about what they're doing. There's a lot of advertising. People are on Twitter, like chatting with each other directly about you know, problems they're having with the platform. And people are investing in each other's companies. Even you know, like Coinbase is an investor in FTX, even though that they are competitors. It's sort of, it's the kind of cooperation and openness is, is very, very different. And I think a lot of that has to do with people with no um, bias of, of how the traditional finance system has worked for all these decades. Um, engineers who are used to more open source cultures coming in, creating companies as if they're just tech companies, even though they're so root, deeply rooted within finance. And I think that for me, getting to sort of be, be a software engineer um, at in crypto, but also knowing what kinds of things have made um, traditional finance uh, successful. You know, what? how do you build a scalable system that allows for, you know, millions of users and billions of transactions, for example? Um, there's a lot of hard-earned lessons from building those kinds of systems at a place like Jane Street that transfer over, I think, pretty well to, you know, FTX and, you know, other exchanges like us. Right. And one of the things we talked about with Anatoly when we had him on our SALT talk was and sort of what Anthony alluded to earlier is that you guys are building the fastest growing, if not one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing exchange globally in the U.S., um, a centralized exchange where you're obviously abiding by all regulatory frameworks that are in place. The Ledger X acquisition was another way for you guys to obtain licenses that allow you to operate in a, in a highly regulated environment. But at the same time, you're investing in Serum, a decentralized exchange that has maybe greater ambitions for the future and also is disrupting the same businesses that you guys are building from a centralized perspective. So sure. how do you balance sort of that short-term perspective of, okay, we have to live inside of the box that, you know, that we have to in the United States and other regulated environments, but also sort of taking that ambitious uh, moonshot at the future of reimagining the financial system and the regulatory framework. So I think that centralized finance and decentralized finance will coexist and continue to coexist even in the long run. And I think there's sort of two arguments behind that. There's sort of a, like a physics argument, and then there's a, a, you know, a regulatory argument. So the, the physics argument is something like traditional finance 
firms, uh, of which many of which are institutions that trade on FTX US, are, are looking for low latency, high throughput, high transactions per second. And in the DeFi world, in order to validate a transaction, it basically needs to hit all of these different validators that could be anywhere in the world. So that sort of puts a theoretical lower bound on how fast a single transaction can occur. It's basically the time it takes light to go around the earth once. So on the order of you know 100-ish milliseconds. But for something like the NASDAQ exchange, you can have a single transaction occur in single digit microseconds, sometimes hundreds of nanoseconds. So they're on complete different orders of magnitude. And I think there will always be a place for large liquidity providers to want to be on platforms that allow for this very low latency. Um, the second is that even as DeFi continues to grow, I think we're going to find that the, the regulatory agencies are going to catch up to the growth of DeFi. And they're going to want to say, look, this is great and it's an awesome innovation. We want to be able to support it, but only if we can make sure we know who's actually interacting with this. We're making sure there's no money laundering occurring on the platform. Make sure people aren't being you know, scammed and their money stolen and everything else. Um, and I think that there's going to be a potential for CFI and DeFi to work with each other where you know, centralized exchanges like us could be the on-ramp into DeFi. You know, we're the, we're the player that knows how to do AML KYC for millions of customers. We're, we're a place where people can safely store um, their funds like a bank. Um, but then we can help provide sort of a gateway into DeFi from that as a portal. So that's sort of how I see these two things coexisting over time. And I think they will help build each other up. Yeah, and to your point, uh, the SEC recently, or there was a report in the Wall Street Journal about the SEC investigating Uniswap, which is the largest DeFi exchange you know, for how inv investors are using the platform, how the platform is marketed, You know, probably tackling some of the same questions that you just talked about. And sort of the, uh, the way smart people in the industry that understand regulation have explained it to me is that they think regulators will continue to crack down aggressively on the real nefarious players in the space, because there's certainly you know, unscrupulous players in crypto the same way there is in any industry. And they'll just, they'll they'll slap other people on the wrist just to make sure that people are staying, you know, within the boundaries that, that the SEC wants to create. Do you think that's an accurate sort of depiction of it? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Anthony talked about the NFT space and gaming. I alluded earlier to Aurori, which is uh, the Aurori project, which is a, a game involving NFTs powered by Serum that, that Anthony was referencing. There's also Star Atlas, which we talked uh, to Anatoly about that, that you guys are supporting with your exchanges. Could you explain again for the people on these talks that are less familiar with what is an NFT powered sort of play to earn type game? What does that look like and why is that so transformative? Sure. So if you think about a, you know, a typical video game with some kind of in-game economy, you know, there might be something like you know, gems or gold and you know you need those gems or gold to be able to perform actions you know within the game, and sometimes you can trade those gems or gold within the game. Um, but then that never really leaves the virtual world, or it hasn't you know prior to the, the advent of blockchain technology. So what NFTs and blockchain in general have allowed games to do is allow for these sort of in-game currencies to sort of escape the game and actually be something that people can trade and buy and sell peer to peer. So an example is, you know, the, the, the most you know, interesting current day example of this is Axie Infinity, which is this huge 
growing force where people are like actually quitting their jobs in the Philippines to go play Axie Infinity because they can earn more per hour playing Axie Infinity than their previous jobs. And so with that, you know, they, they breed these little monsters called Axies, but the Axies themselves are NFTs. They're tokens like virtual currencies, but they're only sort of one of a kind tokens. And they can use them and trade them peer to peer with other people, sell them for profit, buy them, try to train them up, sell them again for profit. And so NFTs has allowed for games to sort of interact with the real world economy in this sort of safe, trustless way that um, has never really existed before. I feel like uh, Pokemon is screaming out for a, a massive multiplayer uh, NFT driven gaming system. You know, that's something that I I think that I would be huge. Watching. I feel like I feel like it's it's only a matter of time. You know? Yeah, I feel like it's tailor made for it. And and as a father of four, I have a one month old. I don't have enough time to game maybe the way I did when I was younger. But these games seem fascinating. It seems like we're just scratching the surface of you know. You read books like Ready Player One. I talked to Anatoly about this, and it's like. You can see that that becoming a reality where these things are so fascinating and, and you create digital economies. Anatoly was talking about how when he was younger, he played World of Warcraft and used to mail physical checks to people to buy their you know, goods and services on their the game. And, yeah. and this is just the uh, the next iteration of that, obviously, in a much more seamless manner and scalable manner. But um, FTX is very focused on climate, sustainability, you know, ESG, if you will, of, of crypto and also just philanthropy generally. I know Sam's passionate about that. It's a, a value set that he's pushed down through the organization. Crypto critics, one of the accusations they like to go to is that, you know, Bitcoin is where it starts about Bitcoin mining and, you know, lack of sustainability. And there, there's other criticisms of crypto that it doesn't really serve a purpose in society while also having a large carbon footprint. First of all, how do you how do you analyze those criticisms? And also, how does that ESG mindset that Sam, you know, has adopted pervade the way you operate your business and the way you guys think about the future. Sure. So I'll break that down into a couple of different parts. So the first is, yeah. So, you know, is the industry worth it? Is sort of a hard philosophical question. I think if you, if you believe in markets and you believe that the markets sort of speak for themselves, a multi-trillion dollar industry doesn't appear out of nowhere um, without some use. And I think we're seeing so many different use cases of the technology and so much promise for that technology that it's hard to ignore. It's hard at this point, you know, how, how, after so many years of criticism or skepticism to, to think that this is going away, that this is somehow not a, a real value add to, success, to society. Um, in terms of the actual energy usage, you know, it's true that Bitcoin in particular, um, being a proof of work, uh, type validation scheme for its blockchain uh, uses a lot of energy. Um, but it's also really interesting in that, you know, counterintuitively, it also helps prop up the renewable energy industry. So one major problem with renewables is that they're typically unpredictable. You know, if you want to use wind or solar power, how much wind or solar are you going to get per day? Well, it sort of depends on, you know, cloud cover and the weather. And what happens if you want to power a city with wind or solar? You need to always produce enough to be able to power the whole city in the worst case. But what if you overproduce? If you overproduce, that energy would typically get wasted. But with Bitcoin mining, what Bitcoin miners are doing is they can easily move their business to the place around the world where energy is the cheapest and there's a surplus of energy. 
And so, for example, if there's a surplus of wind energy in some particular country, the Bitcoin miners can focus on mining Bitcoin in that particular location. And in doing so, they sort of subsidize that energy um, and that company to be able to produce that energy in excess of what they would normally have to do. And so it's a little bit counterintuitive, but I actually think Bitcoin is helping the renewable energy industry. And so such a large percentage of Bitcoin mining is done on renewable sources of energy. Um, and finally, I think in general, if people are concerned about their energy uses, not just for mining Bitcoin, but for running any industry that requires electricity. You know, how about how many servers, you know, does Google have to run to run Google a lot? Um, we should think about how we can offset that energy usage. And so FTX in particular has done a lot of research into different kinds of carbon offsets and, you know, carbon offsetting programs and have already put in millions of dollars into programs to be able to offset FTX's specific usage of energy for its businesses. I think other others, you know, should do the same. And I think hopefully, you know, the mindset of you know Sam and the company and effective altruism in general is helping set you know a very positive example for how a company can be in a hyper growth mode, can raise you know nine hundred million dollars, but can still use money to give back and you know contribute positively back to society. Yeah, and you know at Skybridge we have a significant amount of money invested in Bitcoin, also in Ethereum, and, and we're doing a lot more in the space. We'll probably have more down the pipeline from that, but we bought carbon credits to offset our, our Bitcoin ownership for that exact reason. You know, I think inspired by people like Sam, ignoring a problem, you know, to call the carbon footprint of Bitcoin a problem, yeah, it does use a lot of energy, as you said, it's also incentivizing the build out of, of renewables. But I also think Sam is great and, and you guys as an organization are great in acknowledging the fact that we can get better. You know, we can do things to offset the carbon footprint. We can we can make the industry more sustainable. And I think, you know, just shooting down those problems and saying they don't exist is is not helpful to anybody. And I and I definitely applaud what you guys are doing, what others in the industry are doing to continue to move it forward from a sustainability standpoint and the growth of, of things like Solana. That's a really efficient uh, you know, proof of stake, proof of history oriented uh, blockchains, I think is a positive step as well. Uh, last question I have for you is around the PITH network. So the PITH network, uh, you know, to quote their website, it's a decentralized cross-chain market of verifiable data from high quality nodes to any smart contract anywhere. It's basically trying to take a very fractured marketplace of data that is crypto that, you know, in the early days of crypto, a lot of people have made a lot of money exploiting sort of arbitrage opportunities across boundaries and across different markets. You might know a couple of those types of people. Um, but it's trying to make that market more efficient and trying to plug into high quality nodes, as I just read. Could you explain you know, more in depth, what is the PIF network? Why is it so important to create trustworthy sort of uh, nodes of data that people can operate off of? Sure. So backing up just a little bit. So for anyone who works in traditional finance, you sort of know that the beginning and end of your of any project that you want to build, any brokerage you need to build, any trading firm is having good market data. And there's a couple of things you might mean when you say market data. It could be the top bid and ask price on an exchange in an order book. It could be the last trades that have occurred in the stock, let's say. It could be the full order book. It could be every single bid in the book, every single offer in the book. Most exchanges, charge enormous amounts of money to be able to get this data. And so it's a very high barrier to entry just to even get your hands on good, reliable, low latency, high fidelity data. 
crypto has sort of done something completely different. And, and again, I think maybe this was back to our earlier conversation, having to do a lot with the fact that, you know, software developers with this sort of open source mindset built these systems, but most crypto market data is free. I mean, you can go on FTX US and start listening to the full order by order depth for every symbol for free. And in order for us to have reliable blockchain applications, DeFi applications on blockchains like Solana, we're going to need good market data. And it needs to be reliable and it needs to work across exchange. It needs to have people validating that it's correct and making sure it's kept up to date so that every time someone wants to build an application with market data, they don't have to start from scratch. They don't have to get their own market data. They don't have to store it. They don't have to timestamp it. They don't have to make sure they're getting it in the right order and it's fast. They can rely on someone else. And so what Pith Network has been able to do is not just build the technology to enable market data to be published onto the blockchain for use in things like smart contracts, but they've gotten on board this amazing network of huge tier one institutions. So you think about like there's Jump Trading, there's HRT, Hudson River Trading, Jane Street, all of these like GTS. brand names. Yes. You're going to be speaking alongside Ari Rubenstein at Salt, which we're yeah. looking forward to. And, and they've all partnered to say, you know what, we want to be part of the next wave of innovation. We want to be able to contribute some of our internal proprietary technology to improving the DeFi space by making sure that there's good, reliable market data. And so it, it's not just the technology itself. It's the sort of this like meta thing that's happened, which is getting all of these very traditional firms on board with helping support the future of DeFi and makes Pith pretty exciting. Well, we're looking forward to hearing more about that on that panel that I mentioned. I believe you're speaking Tuesday, September 14th. The conference is September 13th to the 15th. Sam is speaking on Monday, and we're excited to hear that he's coming in person. Uh, and, and congratulations again on the LedgerX transaction. I think people are just learning about LedgerX. It's sort of, a, as you mentioned, Zach is, is a great guy, very smart, operates a little more quietly than some other players in the space. But you know, a great company that's done really innovative things in the way they've attacked the regulatory regime to see you guys married together and, and growing together with the, the rocket fuel that is everything at FTX. We're really excited about that. So Brett, thanks so much for coming on. Anthony, have a final word for Brett before we let him go. I'm also excited, Brett, but I'm disappointed that it's an all cash deal. I just have to <laughs> register that as a very tiny minority shareholder. I don't know what was wrong with these guys in that cap table that they needed all cash. I want as much FTX as I could possibly own. So anyway, well, We'll have to have that conversation when we're not being recorded <laughs> on a salt talk. But in all seriousness, I am uh, grateful for you coming on. And we are looking forward to having you guys uh, introducing you to a broad group of our delegates. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of exciting things that happen there as well. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, thank you both so much. Looking forward to the conference. And thank you again, Brett. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's salt talk with Brett Harrison, the president of FTX US that you might have seen either in the Miami Heat arena or on an umpire's shirt. Uh, I know it's been ubiquitous when I you know, see baseball clips as well. I think the ROI on that, as Brett alluded to, has been extremely high. Uh, but on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Reminder, you can access all of our episodes on our website on demand and on our YouTube channel, which is called SALT Tube. Our website is salt.org backslash talks to access all of our SALT talks. We're also on social media. Uh, Twitter is where we're most active at SALT Conference. And again, we're a few days away here from the SALT Conference in New York. If you'd like to come here, Brett, come here, Sam, uh, speak. We'd love to have you there. We have a few tickets remaining, so uh, definitely sign up at salt.org. 
but again, on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.